0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Dr. Greg Jones Optimization Academy, where I get to interview some of my favorite innovators in health and medicine and fitness and beyond. And today it is my great pleasure to bring on the show, Chris Franklin. Chris Franklin is the CEO of Clinicore Labs in Mandeville, Louisiana. Hope I said that right. Uh, I don't know if I got to get a Cajun accent with we'll Mandeville. Uh, he's a board certified toxicologist and a clinical chemist with over a decade of experience developing clinical diagnostic tests
1: the last years focus on functional medicine. So Chris, welcome to the show. And thank you Dr. Jones. I appreciate you having me, man. It's uh really kind of great to get on there and uh lo- I've really become fascinated with with functional medicine in about 2016, man. So I love the way that you guys are kind of pushing health forward. And taking it instead of a reactionary based approach, almost pro action, meaning that, hey, let's get the body where it needs to be instead of waiting for something to go wrong. Let's get your body at its maximum health. And I think that's kind of what started really intriguing me in about 2016 and kind of became an obsession overall. Which is
0: good. So you guys are around in Louisiana. And so. Uh, kind of talk to me, you know, how'd you go from clinical toxicologist to, you know, running and starting a lab down there and uh, in the bayou?
1: Yeah, man, it was pretty funny. So I was a toxicologist at Merck. I, I ended up in about 2012. A doctor wanted to form a toxicology lab doing urine toxicology. Uh, the name of it became Renaissance, and mm-hmm. became huge. And during that time, I w- I'd never been in clinical and he hired me to build out his lab. And so I found out that I just happened to have like a natural gift for building clinical tests from scratch. And so around 2014, I'd, I'd been promoted the chief scientific officer, and I oversaw all the development of their genetics and their toxicology assays. And I, just, I started coming up with this idea that I looked at the, the lab landscape and I said, you know, like LabCorp and Quest have kind of got what I would call full volume, phlebotomy type draws down. I mean, they've got this huge infrastructure, They're kind of the big 800-pound gorilla. And I said, "How? there's no way to compete directly on them. And I started thinking, well, what if I could take maybe a finger stick style collection? What if I could just, even if I couldn't do all tests, if I could start doing tests from a fingertip, then I could eliminate the need of a phlebotomist. I could be able to, you know, doctors could suddenly pick when and where they wanted to draw the blood. So let's say if it was post-exercise or in a fasted state or at night to see different circadian rhythms, then suddenly I could open up a different line of testing. And that really, I, in 2014, I came up with the idea and literally no one would listen to me. I tried different labs to partner with me. Eventually, what I did was I took a lot of my consulting business and I went into business for myself and began using that revenue to build out a research lab. I actually converted a dry, uh, a dry cleaners into a research lab and built what would be the first prototype of what I call small volume blood. Which was the ability to collect a small sample from a fingertip and measure things like testosterone, cortisol. And I was immediately fascinated by hormones because when you really think about the endocrine system, it's there to bring balance to the body. And so if you're stressed, your cortisols are moving. If you're not eating regularly, your cortisols are moving. If it comes down to um, your testosterone being low, fertility, all of those things tend to be weighed in with your hormones. So the idea in my mind was that if I could get a way to fingerprint your endocrine system, then you could see where the body was at baseline and what was moving it, whether it was regards of stress or whatever stimuli. And so I began building out this kind of concept of small volume blood. I think at the time we had about 12 hormones we could do from a fingertip. And uh, we got there. I filed it together, filed a patent for it. And we really were trying to find the best way to do it, because if you actually look at things like the Journal of Endocrine Society, they've come together and said that, hey, women shouldn't even be used to measure testosterone on immunoassay, which is the traditional chemical analyzer that's in all of the hospitals, because for the very simple reason that it's not accurate, that under a level of about 300, you can't even get a good, um, the, you can't get a good measurement. And so with that challenge, I said, well, what can we do? And it turns out using LCMS was the gold standard for being able to quantitate hormones. And so we started with that base technology and began to build on it. And that's what eventually I filed patents on. And that caused an investor to take notice and gave us a seed funding. And that's where we built Clinicore. Now, the challenge was while that was amazingly innovative technology and doctors loved it, they were like, well, where's the rest of the stuff? Where's your CVCs? Where's your CMPs, your lipids, all of the base chemistry? And, you know, to be honest, the doctors are right. You know, you needed the rest of the chemistries there. And so that's kind of how Clinicore was born. And we just began to expand based on what doctors needed. If they said, hey, can you build us this or can we run this with you? Because they liked our service. We just kept adding. And during that time, I just became fascinated and have given talks at MSACL, ASMS, and other clinical conferences on the endocrine system because we were beginning to map out data that really no one has taken the time to do. Because when you think about it, we're literally fingerprinting an endocrine system every time we run a patient's hormones. So not only are we getting the hormones that the doctor requests, but every other endocrine hormone marker is being stored in the background. So we can actually look at the data and figure out, Hey, what's going on in people's endocrine system and maybe use it for other diagnostic tools that become available because you can spot it in the system.
0: Great. Great. And so this give you a little bit of background on how I found you guys, I was working at this medical spa and a patient came in and um, his previous provider Using clinicor for his labs. And so he brings his old labs in. And I had never seen it before. You know, coming out of school, you know, we knew Lab Core, we knew Quest, we knew the big ones, like the, like you said, the, the the, too big to fail labs, right? And so he gets gives me this panel, and it's the most thorough draw I, I'd ever seen. I mean, there was 17 hydroxy progesterone, there was 17 beta estradiol, there, you know, and we're gonna talk more about some of these things mean here a little bit. So it was a full mapping out of the adrenal pathways and the, and the hormone panels were very thorough and the ranges were good. And I was like, this is great. I, I need to look into this. And so, uh, open an account up and, you know, obviously you guys, what I really liked about it was that you guys had panels already set up for, you know, whether it be in economic profiles or sex hormone profiles. And it was, and it actually made me like, okay, why are they running this? you know, why is pregnant alone in this, you know? And, and so in and all these things, they really got me thinking about, Hey, there's a better way. Like we need to be able to look at these systems more holistically, more on the pathways, because the because if your labs are abnormal, if they're too high, too low, and if you're on HRT or not HRT, there's a reason, you know? And so that is one of the great appreciations I've had for you guys and be able to pick up the phone and say, Hey, something's not looking right. Is there, you know, can we run this again? Or do you have any information on that? So you guys have been really great about that. So what I'd like to kind of talk about is, is, we, you know, really want to focus on hormone labs today, because I think they're fascinating. And I like the fact that you guys are getting that data is it comes down to it. Um, when I talk to patients about aging and healthy aging and, and wellness, I'm saying, Hey, you know, there's, they say nine hallmarks of aging. I kind of break it down to seven for, for simplicity with patients. But the first one I talk about is like, Hey, you have hormones. And as we get older, these hormones decline, they're not as efficient. We don't produce as many. We feel that in, in our body's energy and our sleep and our sex drive and all that. But the issue is that when we say hormones, I think that a lot of people just think testosterone, estrogen, maybe progesterone, right? And so they just kind of go there. And there's so many hormones that affect this, right? And so with that being said, you know, and I like to start this question from the standpoint of hey, you know, here's a new patient, here's a new doctor. This patient has symptoms of hormone deficiency. What are, you know, what would make a perfect hormone panel to get them
1: started? Um, I really, as I, I think of it as kind of like a car, or if you think about it like a performance, you want to benchmark the system before you start moving it. And so I'm a big fan of go ahead, do the endocrinomic profile, add in your basic CBC, your CMP, a lipid, ferritin, sedrate, A1C. I like that is your base uh, in our endocrinomic profile. We're covering things, not only are all of your sex steroids, but we're looking at the hypothalamus, like luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone. We're looking at the thyroid, TSH, free T3, free T4. We're also looking at a fasted insulin level as well as the A1C. So that way you kind of get this entire understanding of a patient's, how is their energy metabolism? How is their body's response to glucose? How is their hormones not just? Is there testosterone in a low level because they're a male that's aging? But what about the DHEA? One of the big differences between our lab and other labs is most labs, because they're using an immunoassay, measure DHEA sulfate. And while that's okay, and it's an an average uh, marker, the problem is once your body moves DHEA into the sulfate pool then it's not going to be brought back into the hormone pathway. And so it's not going to have the adrenal effect that's necessary. So you really want to look at the DHEA, the unconjugated version of it, because it's in a direct line with the pathway. And so DHEA is one of the predominant hormones that are circulating. And this is one of those first ones that begin to decline with age also with stress. There's also been shown relationships between DHEA, unconjugated, and cortisol, that as that ratio shifts and cortisol becomes higher and DHEA becomes lower, mental acuity begins to decline. So I like that first benchmark to say, hey, where is everything at before we start to improve the engine? Well, let's see where you're at. What's your testosterone? Where's that for women? Where's the estradiol? Uh, in the past times, you know, when you think about it, HRT has not really been new, but they did it for postmenopausal women. Heck, I can remember my mom in the early 80s would give her estradiol, and then here's my dad getting older, but it's like, oh, you're a guy, sorry, you just get old. You know, that was kind of because everybody was afraid to say, hey, maybe guys don't want to get old. But I became under the firm impression that if you could bring your chemistry to back where you were 18, just that across the board then the likelihood of your aging process is gonna slow down because the natural chemistries are there to be able to heal your body and take care of it. And so I'm one of those that believe in being able to just optimize your chemistry, but you need to start with that benchmark. Look at where everything's at before you start to move it because there's been a lot of unique things that we found overall. Like for instance, when they start a person on testosterone, very often we will watch their... DHEA and their pregnenolone almost drop to zero. And so what happens is the patient gets on testosterone, man, their levels go up, they feel amazing. But then the body as a biofeedback mechanism begins to say, hey, you don't need that much because testosterone is available. So DHEA begins to drop which drops off some of the mental acuity. And so they tend to get more of a plateaued effect from their HRT. And so being able to keep all those levels optimized allows the patient to be at a better health. So I just find that using that as a benchmark, and then being able to move forward on what they need, basically individualized. And this is kind of like what I would call real personalized medicine, what you guys are doing, because you're looking at, hey, here's the endocrine system, here's your thyroid, Let's do this to make an improvement. And then you're able to monitor it and get real objective feedback.
0: It's great. It's great. And um, that's actually one of the things I did pick up and work with you guys is that I started keeping an eye on pregnenolone and DHEA and DHEA sulfate when my patients are on testosterone because it's almost a matter of not if, but when their pregnenolone is going to drop. And I've been noticing Absolutely. that it's just going to happen. Right. It's like, well, okay, I feel great, but, you know, I don't feel as sharp as I did when we first started. And so you can supplement with pregnenolone or if this is where it comes back to too much of a good thing, or I may have to back them up a little bit. Like if you're pushing, you know, 1,200, 1,300 on your total testosterone and your pregnenolone's dropping, you know, well, maybe that's a little too much, you know, because you're going to feel great still, you know, because we're not chasing a number, we're chasing how you feel. We're trying to optimize those numbers, right, based on the data and the research and the evidence, but also how you feel. Because if you're feeling great at 900, 950 total testosterone at 20 to 25 free, then I don't need to push you to 1300 just to chase a number. Say like, oh, man, bro, I got a thousand testosterone, but, uh, you know, I, my sleep is shitty. Uh, you know, and I can't remember anything because my is in the tank, right? You know, or my stress, or I, you know, I'm not handling stress as well as I used to because, again, it's all in that corticosteroid or cortisol pathway as well. So, and that's fascinating, right there, man. So that's something I picked up from you guys, and I'm, I'm kind of grateful. Really, for really,
1: and that was one of the first things, and we started seeing was, uh, and my back my story was around 2016. I had lower testosterone. I had my actual internal medicine she puts me on testosterone. I get it up to like 800, 900. I mean, I feel amazing. But then she's like, well, you know, I don't really feel comfortable writing testosterone. It made me get off of it. I was like, what? And I remember, I remember the conversation I had with her. I said, I asked her, I said, wait, I said, you're telling me that if I was a postmenopausal woman, you would give me hormone?" She said, yes. I said, if I was a teenage girl and I didn't want to get pregnant, you would prescribe hormones. Correct. I said, if I wanted to change genders, you would give me hormones. I said, but because we're trying to optimize my chemistry, you won't do that. And she's like, that's correct. And I was like, okay, I guess I got to find another doctor. Yeah. And that's where I started realizing that there was a whole, this whole functional medicine area where doctors were saying, hey, let's get you optimized. Let's get your body feeling good. But we noticed uh, early on, we'd started seeing that with patients, DHEA and pregnenolone would shut down. Uh, we found one of the big ones that we found when testosterone gets too high, and this is a very unique one, and most people don't realize it, is that testosterone, if it gets too high, will backfeed into androstenedione, and you will actually see an abnormal androstenedione level. So your body's negative feedback occurs at DHEA, and it'll shut it down, which technically DHEA is converted into androstenedione. And then that's converted into testosterone. But what we'll see is if testosterone, let's say it's running 1300, if it's really outside of your range, then suddenly androstenedione will begin to get out of range. It's almost becomes a reserve pool for testosterone because there's another enzyme that can actually convert testosterone backwards into androstene. So what we'll look for is that that androstene is getting peaked out or starting to come out of range. Then, you know, the testosterone is too high. And this is one of the other reasons why that endocrinomic profile is so effective because if you start seeing the androstene coming up out of range, then you know that they've got so much testosterone, the body's starting to push it backwards into the androstene. And so what I'll normally do is look at my own chemistry. And as long as my androstene stays in a nice range, I may let testosterone be 900 to 1100, but I'll, I'll bring in supplement with the pregnenolone because it's such a potent neurosteroid because it converts into allopregain in the brain. It creates a calming effect. And as I've had to go through a couple of rotator cuff surgeries, the one thing you want to learn to be is calm during that stuff. So, being able to control some of the inflammation and some of the pain modulation.
0: Good. And I guess that thing about your story that, doctor, had, how dare you try to feel good as you yeah. get you're your, your dude? You don't get to feel good. And, and it wasn't stuff. like
1: I turned in a crazy <laughs> number, it was like 800. My PSA yeah, yeah, was yeah, fine, yeah. CDCs, lipids were good. And she's just like, I don't feel comfortable writing, and I'm like, but you'll write it for every other scenario except this. Right. And I was like, there's going to be, an, and that's when I started really. That's when I first got introduced to functional medicine, and I was like, man, you guys are really kind of on the front edge, and I love where that area was going. And so we really kind of spun our lab to be able to do that part and work with that area because I think that's the future of healthcare.
0: Yeah, and and you know, and again, there there has to be a level of comfort with the prescriber that's giving you testosterone. They have to be able to know where the side effects can come from, and what labs to look at. That's why that CBC you mentioned that is so important, right? Because most doctors who are prescribing testosterone know that testosterone will make your body convert, uh, actually increase your production of EPO, erythropoietin, and now you're going to produce more red blood cells more red blood cells, why you get more oxygen, why people get more energy, but you don't make more blood, right? So that volume is the same, but more red cells, and then the blood can get thicker. That's a risk that you have to mitigate with either dosing or doing the dose, decreasing dose or dosing more frequently, which seems counterintuitive, but if you dose less of it, you know, then you won't get those peaks, right? Then also, you know, if they have to do phlebotomy and drop the levels, that's another option as well. So there are a lot of different options that are, you know, available to do that, to observe that. Right. And obviously if your estrogen gets too high and a strong gets too high, then that's a clot risk. All these things are in play. And that's why that profile, not just looking, and that's going to be the next thing I want to talk about, not just looking at the testosterone and the total and free and just estradiol, but, and you know, I'm almost like so excited to talk about this is because, you know, again, you want to be able to look at a but there are some labs I've got reports back from other patients where they don't run the estradiol 17 beta or the estrone, they just
1: do total estrogens. So when you see that, what's typically happening, and this is another part of, and this is one of the things when I first got into this area of clinical was I was frustrated was when you think about it, immunoassays, when they first came out in the seventies, they were cutting edge, but that was the seventies. We're now in the new millennium, you know, and you would think that there were more labs that would adopt mass spec because of its accuracy, but they don't. The reality, they can't, they can't report estrone or estriol or breaking it down into 17 beta estradiols because they're not using mass spectrometry. So when you see a total estrogen, it means that they're using 40 year old technology. And they do that because it's cheaper. It requires less uh, scientific ingenuity to build it. I can tell you, we, we participate in CAP proficiency tests. And for many of them, there's less than 10 labs in the United States that can do some of these hormones by mass spec because they break us into all that. Um, There's only 17 labs in the country that are actually using mass spec for testosterone, even though the Endocrine Society recommends it for women, and you still don't see it done. And it's because the other technology is a moderately complex test. So the level of a lab to run it, you know, they don't have, like we have a half a million dollar mass spec running these hormones, whereas somebody else has got a reagent rental on an immunoassay. There's nothing wrong with those, but if you're really going to look at hormones you really ought to be using it by mass spec. And there's a few labs that do, but there's such a few that do. One of the things that you find with it is that our hormones can often be a um, less, what you'll find is they tend to be about 20% lower because another example, they don't tell you about testosterone or an immunoassay, but the immunoassay is not specific enough so that testosterone is getting lumped in with DHEA It's being lumped in with androstenedione. It's also being lumped in with DHT because the immunoassay can't see the difference. It just calls all of that testosterone. So it creates a number that is artificially higher than their real number. One of the first things that when doctors first started using this in the functional medicine space, they were like, wow, these results really match up more to what the patient's symptoms are than what we were seeing in other labs because they were getting somebody that might've been, let's say 450. And they're like, well, you're not really low testosterone. And they, were, they had all the symptoms, and then all of a sudden they would run it at hours, and the patient's really around 300, 325, and they're like, oh, well, wait a minute. And so that was one of the big ones, and that when you mentioned the estrone and the estradiol, one of the unique things I find postmenopausal women they, is they'll produce estrone, but not estradiol. And so you'll actually see their strong numbers go up really high, as opposed to their estradiol once they've gone postmenopausal.
0: Exactly. So, and you mentioned another, a good hormone to include in that initial panel is the DHT or dihydrotestosterone, because again, when people talk about a lot of the side effects of testosterone, they're talking about elevated DHT. So that's going to be your hair loss. And in some cases, excessive hair growth, that's going to be the acne. That's going to be the oily skin. That's going to be the prostate enlargement. That's going to be the irritability is that excessive DHT. Um, but sometimes, sometimes I'll see a patient on testosterone, their levels are great. Total is great. Free is great, but their DHT is non-existent you know so do you guys see that and you know and and practice over there and is there any interpretation of that
1: so we have seen it it's it's a mixture now when you think about it there's a couple of metabolic fates the question is if, if their testosterone's let's say their testosterone's great their dht is low what is their estrogens doing i mean because sometimes you will see because your body is going to kick it into one of those pathways so if it kicks Uh, not into DHT, then it's likely that it's going to convert it into estrone or estradiol or estriol to be excreted from the body. We've seen a few people that didn't really get the DHT, but see all of a sudden their estradiols go up. And so the doctor usually has to give them a mild aromatase inhibitor because some of their, uh, their I think it's 2C19 that converts testosterone into estradiol tends to run at a high level. So what happens for those patients is that enzyme is also converting androstenedione into estrone and testosterone into estradiol. And so we can see some of those numbers be shifted over that direction. Um, Unfortunately, I got my dad's genes where I can grow hair everywhere except on my head, which means that I naturally will run a little bit higher on DHT. Uh, I have another one of this kind of unique in my own chemistry. I guess it's a blessing and a curse, but I have a polymorphisms in my genes that does not produce a lot of SHBG. So for me, the majority of my testosterone is free. And for years, we would measure my, I'd measure my SHBG, and it's almost below the quantitation limit on our equipment over and over again. And I finally, just out of fun, uh, a guy I know runs a company called Nebula Genomics. They do uh, clinical grade sequencing. And so I had them sequence my human genome. And turns out there was the polymorphism that my body just decides that it doesn't want to produce as much. SHBG is everybody else. Uh, Very unique polymorphism, but it's one of the reasons that most of my testosterone ends up free. So for me, I don't need as high of a level. If I'm running 800, 900 on the testosterone, I feel great because my free is running really high, only bound up to like bioavailable through albumin. But these are where we've seen that. uh, We've seen both the conversion like mine where it naturally wants to run into DHT and conversely have seen it where some patients... They've really got to be on more aromatase inhibitor, whereas me, if I don't, I don't necessarily need an aromatase inhibitor, but that comes down into kind of the polymorphism of the cytochrome P450 enzymes, because that's going to control kind of these gatekeepers on how your body moves through the endocrine pathway. Three, two, one. So you
0: mentioned a, a level there that has been the, or a lab that's been kind of one of the bane of our existences here is the SHBG or sex and binding globulin. That protein drives me nuts sometimes, man, because it will get, we have patients where it gets so high and their total testosterone will be awesome, but I cannot get their free up because their SHBG is running high. And I look at the usual suspects, man, like, okay, is your thyroid too high? Okay. Nope. You know, uh, is your, are your liver enzymes off? You feel like your liver is compromised? Nope you know, are you drinking too much alcohol? They say, no, you know, are you under stress? Say, it's minimized. Then I look at DHEA and I got all these factors down and I just can't get that SHBG down to the point where I started looking at, at P par gamma and that's a whole other pathway right there. But, you know, from what you guys are seeing, when you have that highly elevated SHBG and we just can't get our patients to access their testosterone, what are some of the strategies that you guys are, are seeing there at clinical?
1: All right. So now this is a couple ones. <clears throat> we've actually found this one in a publication, and this is kind of a bizarre one. But your body naturally, we're you know, your body always focuses to try to get to the center. Like it wants to balance in the center. SHBG is actually promoted by estradiol. So if you look at the estradiol levels, if some of those estradiol levels are going high, your body will upregulate SHBG in response to estradiol, not necessarily testosterone. So one of the things we found is if you can bring the estradiol down a little bit, sometimes the the SHBG will actually drop off because it's being signaled for the upregulation of the protein by estradiol, not the actual testosterone. It's kind of counterintuitive because you're thinking, well, SHBG is binding up testosterone, but the signal is SHBG that tells it to make more. So take a look at the estradiol. One of the things we found that is if you bring those estradiols low, then you will often see the SHBG come on down. And that's not in every clinical practice. But we've read a couple of papers on it because I agree the first time I saw it, I was when I kept seeing mine was low. And that's what got me studying it. I was like, how in the world do I not produce a hormone? Now, granted, I wasn't complaining because I like all my free testosterone but I was like, why is mine low? And we're seeing other people. They were running 20 times what my levels were, and they were on HRT. And the biggest thing that we found there, and we matched the paper up, was that if the estradiols go up, that kind of tells the body, hey, you need more SHBG, partly because the body's assuming if I've got a lot of estrogen, then I must have a lot of testosterone because it's being converted to estrogen. So it's kind of a feedback. Same thing happens in the hypothalamus with uh, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. You will actually find that testosterone is not the feedback that tells those to turn off, but actually estradiol is the mechanism that turns it off. So you can often with a moderate testosterone, use a mild aromatase inhibitor, get a two to 300 point jump on testosterone because the body doesn't get its uh, estrogen. We did a study with Navadex, a uh, re- while back with someone that wasn't on HRT. Their testosterone was right at 300. They got on Navadex, and by just using it and being able to block that estrogen receptor, their testosterone jumped up to 680 and was able to maintain almost what would have been about a 300-point jump without HRT. It was just basically blocking the estrogen signal at the hypothalamus, and the body began to produce more testosterone. And so there's been some of those pieces is really looking at that, that feedback between the estrogen to testosterone at the conversely, what most guys don't like to admit is the reality is though without estradiol, that testosterone by itself, isn't really going to do much. For, it does a lot for the libido, but it doesn't complete it. And we find that usually about a 10 to one ratio, seven to one ratio, testosterone to estradiol is where that number is going to give you like that best balance and overall well being and libido.
0: So what I've been seeing clinically is when my when my guys are feeling the best is when their total testosterone is in that nine hundred to eleven hundred range. They're free is in that, it's, you know, I was taught twenty to thirty, but sometimes when I'm in the lower end of twenty, they're just not feeling it. Probably in that twenty four to twenty eight range. And estradiol, I really really try to get that between twenty and thirty to thirty five. And it depends on the guys. Some guys get a little more sensitive when it gets above thirty, but twenty to thirty five seems to be the sweet spot. You know, they're getting protection of the bone you know, getting hard, the, the benefits of the cardiovascular system benefits, they're getting the skin benefits as well. But also that libido and erectile function seem to be better when they're kind of in that lower range right there. You know, and that's what we're seeing here. And that, you know, and those tough cases, man, I've had some cases where the estrogen is not high, and I still get a high SHPG, man, and I'm still digging through the books oh. and it, it, it's it's rare that it happens, and sometimes we'll give them DHEA because sometimes we've seen that counteract and actually lower SHBG some SHBG some as well.
1: So and it will also it, and the, while it's not as it has the greatest affinity, mm-hmm. DHEA will bind up SHBG and help re- create a better free testosterone level. Yeah. So it kind of in order of binding DHT then testosterone then understand and DHEA but all of those combine to SHBG so if you think about it as you're filling up a car and you've got four seats in the car you could either put all four of those seats with testosterone or you could have one testosterone sitting in it and three DHEA and so if you've got the car filled up with more DHEA then you're going to have more free testosterone circulating in the blood to create a little bit better effect
0: right which is good. So let's kind of bring this on home, man. So we've, we've talked about it and I hope that the listeners out there who are both practitioners and patients can get a better idea of what they should be looking for in their labs. But um, if I'm hearing you right and thinking from my experience and everything we're talking about today and what you guys do at clinic Core, if I'm trying to take a good, effective, holistic, whole person, look at the whole system approach to hormone labs so we want to start, like you say, the baseline, the foundation, CBC, CMP, kidney and liver function, especially liver function, because the liver is responsible for metabolizing these hormones, blood sugar levels, HbA1c, because there is a correlation between high blood sugar and insulin resistance and low testosterone. Uh, so you've got your vitamin, you mentioned vitamin D as well. Vitamin D is important for the production of hormones. And then you've got your cortisol, thyroid levels. And so now kind of diving into the hormone panel, So you got your total testosterone, your free testosterone, your estradiol, your estrone, your pregnenolone, your DHEA, your DHEA sulfate, your DHT, uh, prolactin. Don't forget about that because if prolactin, if you have prolactinoma, then that's going to affect luteinizing hormone and lead to low testosterone. Uh, PSA for guys, progesterone for women. Uh, Let's see, what am I missing here, man? On the hormone side, I'll tell
1: you what. One of the big ones, and this is when I uh, gotten out of shape. I would actually done like I said, I did a lot of fingerstick studies, uh, cortisol levels. Uh, mm-hmm. I looked at like, cortisol and one of the unique things we do is we do cortisol and cortisone and you're like, well, why is that important? Well, cortisone is kind of, you think about it, your reserve, your body needs to be able to convert and make active, which is cortisol, the active stress hormone on demand immediately. So your body circulates cortisone throughout the body And then let's say you get stressed, anxiety, you haven't eaten, whatever, your body will flip the switch and an enzyme will convert cortisone into cortisol. And you can actually see adrenal fatigue. One of the things we deal with with a lot of we have a lot of pain clinics that are actually starting to use some HRT to be able to improve the overall uh, response to patients, because one of the things we found in all the populations, and this is what's cool with the, the bigger data when I start aggregating, is I'll look at populations. And when I look at a pain clinic, when they look at their hormone profiles, what we end up seeing is it's almost instead of a Gaussian distribution where you've got, you know, maybe 10% high, 10% low. When I look at the pain clinics, you end up with what is like a biphasic distribution, you'll see patients with their cortisol super high, or absolutely gone. And so what happens is your body gets in pain, your body begins to dump hormones. It's like, hey, here's some hormones to help you cope with the stress of whatever chronic injury you've got. The problem is your body can't keep producing. It's going to run itself out. It's kind of like I use the analogy, you have a double espresso today, and if you haven't had caffeine in several months, well, suddenly you're bouncing off the ceiling. But if you have that same double espresso every day for three weeks, it's mostly like a warm flavored liquid at the end of that because your body has become a little burnout. And when those cortisol levels, that cortisone and cortisol levels drop, the perception of pain, even though the injury may not have changed, the perception of pain goes up because the body's natural mechanism that helps you deal with that stress is gone. And so by looking at that cortisone level uh, with the cortisol, you can actually tell when people are going into adrenal fatigue, because you'll see the cortisone levels go low, but their body's still able to output cortisol. And when you see that, you know, the next step is in cortisols are about to plummet too. And so it gives you an idea of how well you're, just like the DH, it gives you an idea about the adrenal reserves, are the adrenal glands functioning, are they at full capacity so that they're there. One of the other ones that we've seen in terms of anomalies is aldosterone. We measure that and it turns out about 2% of patients that have high blood pressure, it's actually caused by aldosteronism, which is basically the kidneys in, uh, inaccurately fluctuating the fluid level. So your body's got too much fluid in it. It's not balancing its fluid homostasis. And the biggest community that we've run in it because we work with a lot of bodybuilders, a lot of pro figure competitors. And the one thing we've seen out of every one of the people that compete in the bodybuilding, male and female, is their aldosterone level will get messed up and it will stay out of balance for up to six weeks after their show. Like Mm -hmm. literally, and I'll, I'll tell them, I've looked at it and I'm like, the first time we started seeing it, I would go to them and I'd figure out what they were doing. They were like, well, we did a show and I'm like, well, how long ago? It was two weeks. And then I would start monitoring. We'd see six weeks after a show before their aldosterone levels came back to normal because of their dehydration for the show. It literally put the kidneys in such a state where it took it almost two months to balance itself back out from doing one of the bodybuilding events. And this was just one of those anomalies we were able to observe, just like in the pain patients, instead of seeing a Gaussian distribution, we started seeing biphasic where there was no average patients. There was either those that had just got in pain or those that their pain wasn't managed and it had eventually had depleted itself to the point where the opiates or whatever the doctor was doing for therapy had stopped working. So being able to kind of see that one along with the aldosterone is really good, especially when you're talking about being on HRT, the potential for hypertension or androgen-related hypertension. You wanna know that those fluid levels are kind of balancing out, that they're not running away with you because there's a small percentage of the population that will have some trouble with aldosterone. Um, We've seen it mostly in the bodybuilding community, and I don't think it's from the steroids as much as it's from the post-show. They dehydrate themselves down and the kidneys get really freaked out and don't know how to come back from it right away, just as an anomaly we've noticed.
0: Now, with that being said, does that aldosterone level, does it get itself back into optimal range? Does it regulate itself back out? Or is there something that as practitioners we need to do to bring that back? I mean, or is, have
1: you seen it not come back into balance is a better way to ask that. I'm trying to think. Uh, most of them, I believe we've actually seen come back. It usually takes Good. time. There's been a couple of them that I was like, hey, you ought to go maybe go ahead and see a doctor, get this checked mm-hmm. out, bring your lab report to them. You know, because a lot of those are doing cash pay with us, and they'll go get it checked out. They're just trying to be safe, and they're working out, and I mean, they're pushing their bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, the, the the thing that surprised me, I think, was not that it was two weeks after the show, but a month after the show, their levels were still off. That to me was a little bit more lingering than just a short-lived uh, number. The some of the other ones, and then under Konopka profile, we also run HGH, and I'll, I'll kind of specify why we do HGH versus. IGF-1. And this is really correlates directly to a lot of the functional medicine. When you're talking about uh, samoralin, ipamoralin, CJC-1295, what we've seen, and we've surveyed a lot of doctors, a lot of them, you don't really necessarily see a movement in IGF-1. And those will stay baseline, but the patients are like, hey, I feel better. And so one of the first questions I've got in my mind is when something like that happens, because I mean, I've been on samoralin and I'm like, I do feel better. It does seem like it helps. Uh, we measured it and what we were able to notice in a fasted state, I did about a three week study and I used a difference of some basically a placebo with nothing. And then with actual real omitrope human growth hormone, because I wanted to know one, not just where did my growth hormone number go, but where did every other chemistry in the body, everything from prolactin to TSH, where are these numbers moving? When you begin to give your body these peptide molecules. And what we noticed is my growth hormone did uh, move when you measured it about a two hour after a subcutaneous injection, we did notice about a, almost about a four to eight fold increase in growth hormone. So I was HGH was like 0.02 nanograms per mil and on samoralin and ipamoralin, I was able to go to about 0.4. So it, it's still a significant, almost a tenfold jump. Roughly, we were able on average on a week average between eight to tenfold increase on which was significant. One of the things we noticed is that it did not affect, uh, affect insulin levels at all, which are good because one of the common problems with HDHs is insulin resistance that can be brought on by it. Uh, we did notice a little bit of movement in the thyroid. So it seemed like it, it had an increase on TSH, which was going to cause an increase in the thyroid output, which is not necessarily a bad thing because what most of the people uh, talk about is that it's improved fat loss. Uh, their body seems rested. I think there's some other things that happen in the circadian rhythm, but those were the two big ones that we noticed that were different than regular growth hormone is that we see there's no movement in the insulin, which is actually a good thing. And that we also see that you move a little bit on the TSA to some of the other hormones. It's almost like it primes the system. It's almost like it recharges the system because it's a little bit more non-specific when it's binding to that ghrelin receptors in the body. And so one of the these things we find that on an empty stomach, fasted, the dose is a little bit better. You get a better movement out of somorolin than you would as if you had it on food. Um, I think overall it probably works better at night. But if I was going to do a patient, and I think it was one of the questions you kind of mentioned in the email was to think about is if a patient's wanting to see if they're getting a response, then have them that baseline HGH with that endocrinomic profile. And then have them take the dose and then prepare to have them do another blood draw, because if they're going to be able to see the numbers, an objective measurement is great evidence, because a lot of times your mind will play tricks on, you know, like Pavlo's dog, you can believe something's worked to the point where you convince it. But if you can actually see some objective movement and numbers, then you know that it's a matter of time, because none of this stuff hormone replacement, you know, none of it's going to happen overnight. You're going to feel better, but the physiological change take time. Your body doesn't wake up the next day and some amazing help, just because you started to move your chemistry It's kind of a process where your body's going to heal itself and recover. So being able to get that objective measurement to know that, Hey, you know what you are responding. When we stimulate that ghrelin receptor, you're getting this five fold increase in your growth hormone, which is a significant, it's going to move you back maybe on the clock, maybe 10 years. And so that gives you this benefit and allows you to go, all right, Cause there's a lot of people who get on the peptides and they're like, well, man, you know, I didn't suddenly get two inches taller and this and that. Cause I don't know what they're expecting. Cause it's kind of unrealistic, but the reality is those, you see those numbers move, then you're putting them into a better state. I it was part of the thing, part of my protocol that I utilized for recovering from a rotator cut surgery was I used the Samorlan and ipamorlin.
0: That's great, man. That's great. So that's good. And you actually answered my last question would have been which lab should we be taking a look at if we want to optimize peptide therapy? And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that but looking at growth hormone. I would still look at IGF 1, too, just a little bit to get the baseline and see if it's trending. And IGF 1, BP3, um, just so I have that start to finish of the therapy. Um, another one you mentioned TSH, thyroid, prolactin, you mentioned cortisol, insulin. Uh, I will keep an eye on prolactin as well. So anything that has to do with pituitary gland, pituitary gland. Oh, yeah, look at your LH
1: and FSH. If Mm -hmm. they're not on testosterone, look at those. Um, See it because you want to be able to determine if it's primary or secondary uh, hypogonadism. You know, what's causing it? Is the brain not sending the signal? As they've gotten older, the testes not producing. It'll give you an idea because let's say somebody is at three or four hundred. They're right on that age. You maybe not want to start them on testosterone completely, but a clomid and using like an aromatase inhibitor, man, a lot of times those guys are going to bump up to 700 and that might be enough for somebody that is mild that doesn't want to go to the injectable shots. Peptides, we've been uh, a combination of the samoralin, ipamoralin. We were able, like I said, to write at a tenfold increase over the baseline on a comparison on an average. So not a bad number. I think the we noticed that it did seem to keep prolactin lower on the somerol and niperolol. Insulin wasn't moved, whereas when we did the with the amatrope you will notice a little bit of the insulin. So it's even more important to be in a fasted state with like real human growth hormone because the body can become insulin resistant or become insulin sensitive, where it's wanting to release a lot more insulin a lot quicker. Right. And we've noticed exactly. that. And so looking at some of those pieces, it seems that it puts your body in a much more at growth state and it's more of like a mild changes but it kind of primes that endocrine system across the board with some of these peptides right. we've looking and i'm looking at some different ones because i'm interested in some of like the and beta looking at tb500 uh getting a feel for those we've seen one i can't remember the name of it i want to say it's mk six of peptide it's a growth secret talk but it's an orally bioavailable. Mm-hmm. and we yeah actually, that's
0: uh that's mk677 butamorin
1: yeah i recognize that because if you notice that mk that's a designation that meant that it was made by Merck because that's how Merck uses all their prefixes of drugs that go to clinical. So when you see an MK, I was there, if I was at Merck for five years. And so whenever you had an MK number, that meant that it moved from phase 2B to phase three in the clinical stats and they give it the MK number for representing Merck. And so they count through like that. So it was an originally compound by Merck that was licensed to somewhere else for muscle wasting disease. Uh, we did, I can say this, with using a combination of that with some Moreland, we were in GHRP6. I was able to simulate uh, the same growth hormone levels with that as you could with regular human growth, two IUs of regular human growth hormone. And that Perfect. created almost a 20-fold increase. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Well, Man, this has been great. Uh, I have enjoyed this conversation here, and I feel like this is going to make me a better clinician. I hope anyone listening out there is going to be a smarter patient, a better clinician, a better practitioner, and be able to look at these factors and these labs with their patients to learn more and and be better. So that being said, man, uh, for anyone that's looking to find out more information about you or ClinicCore, where should they look?
1: Uh, We've got our we're on our website. We've got our ClinicCore labs. We're on social media, Facebook. Instagram, LinkedIn. We have some of that information. You can reach out to our lab directly. Uh, We're in probably I don't know about a dozen different states. We work with mo. We're we're in network with almost all insurance providers. So we do both cash pricing. We make it both available and um, especially in the functional medicine area. Look, we'd love to work with you because we just enjoy working with that because I feel like that's the frontier of science, you know. And so if we can help you guys. Like what you're doing, move forward because it's. I think it's such an important role. Heck, let's just face it. This last pandemic, if everybody would have been healthy and had their chemistry optimized, you probably wouldn't have known it happened. But yet, low vitamin D's, you were out of shape. High one of the markers that we found, high ferritin levels, was a good predictive indicator of how bad your COVID was going to be before you got it. So if you had high levels of ferritin, hyperferritemia was one of the symptoms that you found within COVID because of the inflammatory response and your body starting to torch itself. So knowing the chemistry and having that stuff in the right set would have made this a whole lot better. So I love what functional medicine is doing. And that's just one of the places I like. It's one of my passions. So being able to work with definitely. you guys and see what y'all are doing is just a, you know, it's a unique thing to put it all together.
0: Definitely, man. Definitely. So, but hey, man, thanks again. I appreciate your time. And we got to do this again. We will do this Absolutely, again, here, man. Because, Enjoy again it. Man, I know I, I was telling before the show, I was like, man, we can do a whole segment on on on. Inflammation, oxidative stress. We can spend another conversation on thyroid labs and how to interpret those and get optimal panel timing on labs. I mean, we didn't get into that. There's so much more to this, man. That's the beauty of it. So, but hey, thanks, Chris, man. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. And thanks everyone for listening and watching. Thanks.